I remember one of my mentors said to me, you don't take cases on to settle them, right? And, and I remember my response. That's resp an interesting I perspective. I challenged him on that and I said, okay, but what about family law? Yeah. Like family law is the worst possible, like I recognize that. I recognize that in law school is the worst possible area, this battle zone. I mean, you think about all the war analogies that we use uh, when we're custody battle. It's a war. Those analogies are very violent language in family law. Um, but I just accepted that, okay. System goes a student, right? So the system doesn't work great. Everybody seems to be chirping about how the system isn't the greatest, but this is the best system that we have. So we keep beating our heads against that brick wall. And at some point I recognize that if I keep doing it, I'll end up with brain damage fatal car accidents. I mean, it's, I, I'm used to driving down to Windsor. I'm from Windsor. You're born in Windsor. Born in Windsor. So Windsor is a border town of sorts. It is. It's a border. What does that, what does a border town even mean? Have you heard the term border? Yeah. I've heard of it, but what does that, what does it connotate border town? Well, on one side, yeah. you have, in fact, if, if you listen to the song, Don't Stop Believing. Okay. South Detroit yeah. would actually be Windsor. Right. Because there really is no South Detroit. It's Windsor, so it's, you know, it, you had the benefits because Detroit, at least growing up, was such a big city. Mm -hmm. Right. It was a growing city. I mean, I saw all my first concerts there, okay. uh, all the entertainment, uh, but it was, effectively, you had two different cultures. Mm -hmm. Also scared the crap out of me because the Detroit news was always about murder and, and killing. So as a, as a child, when, when you reflect on trauma, I was always scared to watch the news. Because it was always, a, you, the lead story was always something about. So you were a child watching news? What child watching news? <laughs> Come on, you are watching like cartoons and stuff like everybody. I watch cartoons too. Scooby-Doo though. Which I mean, watch tell, me, tell me there isn't trauma in Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because like, um, like Windsor, Detroit, I've only, again, I've only passed through there. I've never stopped in Detroit. I'm only thinking about Detroit now because potentially I would have a family member going to school there or something. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, there's, there it is. It's been there all along. And if you want to catch a leaf game, it's sometimes easier to catch a leaf game. It's, it, it's a good game to watch. At least for a while it was, you know, Ottawa, Ottawa, Toronto yep. or Detroit, Toronto. And when you go down to these places, you get all these fans kind of coming through. Right. So, and well, that's where you were born. Growing up though, the natural rivalry in baseball, baseball is my sport. Got it. Detroit, Detroit Tigers. Yeah, yeah. Detroit Toronto. Yeah. And then they went yes. and realigned everything. Yes. And yeah. so now there yeah. still is that rivalry, but they don't play each other as much. So Beautiful it's not. stadium too, Tigers. Yeah. Uh, you know what though? I miss the old ballpark. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a traditionalist and a purist. That old hole of a ballpark where four bucks got you in mm -hmm. to the bleachers. And, uh, you know, as I got older, you, you bought a case of beer and sat in a parking lot across the street for an hour or two before the game uh, to get ready and then you were four dollars in and it mm -hmm. was you know the obstructive view seats you don't see stadiums with those kinds of things anymore mm -hmm. uh the closeness to to the field you, you don't see that as yeah. much anymore so you grew up in the in windsor in windsor and you went to university in windsor i went to university in windsor my mom actually was a nurse in detroit at Henry Ford Hospital. Okay. And married a Detroit cop. 
Uh, it's like an extension, these two cities. Well, yeah, people will even go grocery shopping. Like, no, and my, no, they, no. They'll, they'll live in Windsor and they'll go across the cereals you can get in the United yes. States oh, yeah. as a child. It's, it's, it's like a it's yeah. just bridge. You just go back and yeah. forth over the bridge. Yeah. yeah, there's a bridge and a tunnel. Yeah. Uh, so you either took the bridge. I always liked taking the tunnel as a kid. Okay. Um, but my mom, when she married the Detroit police officer, uh, after my parents had separated, they separated when I was six uh, and divorced. Um, I was going weekends. Oh, over to the to the states. States. Okay, which probably fueled my trauma as a child because I was always afraid I would get murdered or abducted. Like those were the storylines. But then I had the same feeling, and I grew up here in Flemington Park. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's the same feeling. But it is a worry when when we're that that age. Um, and I it it must have been way more amplified for you because obviously you do know what it's like to live in a nice place like Windsor, and it's. People leave their doors unlocked, I imagine, back then, and that kind of stuff would happen. And then you still know you're, you know, you're now moving into a different sort of an environment when you go into, into Detroit. I actually know a, somebody who went to Windsor to get her JD. It's called, I guess, JD. Juris doctor. Yeah, the Juris doctorate. Uh, yeah, and it, but she got a double one: University of Windsor and University of Detroit. Mercy. Yeah. And so she's got a GED to practice in Canada and in the U.S. So it's an advantage in that sense. Yeah, I, I didn't follow that course. Yeah. And I, I had no desire to practice in the States. But, you know, when you look at other border towns, say around even in Canada, you've mm -hmm. got, say, St. Uh, Niagara Falls and Niagara Falls. Is that, that's not the same experience as Windsor, Detroit. Windsor, Detroit seemed to be a lot more yeah. intimate. Right? It's more of, yeah, like I find Niagara Falls is just more commercial, right? Yeah, it's too, it doesn't have that feeling like, you know, when you could go down to the Windsor Riverfront mm -hmm. and your skyline was like the what used to be called the Renaissance Center. I think it's now called the GM Center, but those towers, mm -hmm. um, the circular tower being the, the centerpiece, you would be able to look over there and, and see that. I don't think you get that experience necessarily like I travel into Buffalo a lot when I fly. I usually fly out of Buffalo now. And that experience, it's like this long road that then leads you to this bridge and then you're in New York State, but it's not, there was an intimacy there. There was a connection that you felt being in Windsor, uh, looking over at Detroit. Um, even when, and you'll often see that the skyline of Detroit, when they have a sporting event, for example, they'll have the skyline coming from Windsor. Um, or sometimes they reverse it and they'll show across the, across the river, the Windsor view of things, depending on like hockey. Yeah. You might see if there's a Canadian element, if they're playing the Toronto Maple Leafs, they may show Canada is just across the board. There was that intimacy. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You went over there, you would go over there for dinner. You wouldn't necessarily yeah. Niagara oh. Falls go over to the no, States right. for dinner. Uh, although grocery shopping, I think people still do. Mm -hmm. Uh, go over to the states for that, um, but yeah, it was, it was that feeling like it was an extension of, um, and and so that's my concept of what a border town is. But it's interesting to hear that. Did you have a lot of people? Did you notice a lot of people from Detroit coming to Windsor? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And when I was it's just one way, like where people enjoyed mm -hmm. from Windsor going to Detroit. No, because we had cheaper beer. <laughs> cheaper beer and then when the casino yeah uh, when the casino okay, okay, yeah. you, you because Windsor was one of the first to get a casino now Detroit has two or three 
Um, but at that point, remember mm -hmm. Windsor, it was groundbreaking that there would ever be a casino. Initially, I think it was run by the province. It's now, I think, privatized in Windsor. Um, but I remember that it was, and, and we had an initial casino. Then we got a, a gambling boat from down south. So we had a river boat uh, in Windsor for a, a while. What they did was they took over the um, Windsor Art Gallery, displaced the art gallery into the mall. Makes you more money this and, way. And had this big space for, for the casino. So you were there a, a while. You went to university there. You got your law degree there. Uh, was that, is that where you got your law degree? I got it. I started in. I actually I wanted to get out of Windsor. It was always my desire to get out of Windsor. I got my undergrad in psychology. Okay. Uh, four year honors degree in psychology there. I wrote a thesis that ended up getting published. Um, wow. Yeah, probably indicative of the drugs I was using back then. It was kind of a psychotrope. Out the creative side, I am told. <laughs> uh, but I do have a published paper in the British Journal of Clinical Psychology, which uh, people uh, often find interesting. I don't necessarily remember those times. Right. But then I, uh, I wanted to get away. So I ended up going to Edmonton for law school. I went to the University of Alberta okay. my first year. And, and it was cold and lonely out there. Uh, Andrea, who's my wife, uh, it'll be 25 years in May. We got, uh, we got engaged that very first year. I was in law school when I came back for Christmas. And so I decided to move back. Uh, I moved back to Windsor. She stayed in Windsor when you went there for school? She stayed in Windsor when I went for school. And then when I came back to Windsor for my second year of university, she went to Mac to get her gerontology <laughs> degree. And then ultimately we ended up back together. But she and I grew across, grew up across the street. Okay. We went to high school together. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, a lot of times um, there's this idea that professional journeys are not personal journeys. You know, it's a professional journey. And let's just talk about the professional journey. Whereas now I think it's starting to become realized that the person and the professional are the same thing, the same person intertwined. I did, and, but I don't know I would have viewed it that way. Did back you? Then. I, you were, it was a professional journey. It from, was a professional journey. From when did you grade, decide, hey, this is what I'm going to go? Like grade two. Right. Okay. So you knew this. Grade two. I was always into uh, my interests were. Uh, as it turned out, what now is a genre of true crime. Right. Um, my mom was always reading books like that. She was very much about the Ken Kennedy assassination. And so I was always reading these books and she had books about serial killers. Like, great. You wonder why I have trauma in childhood. <laughs> I think I'm identifying. Yeah. Okay. Right. There we go. But she, and I, we had by the hour <laughs> to him. I had an interest in it and. So what ended up developing from there was, um, I, I also had this, what it turns out is a social justice kind of mm -hmm. thing, a, a, a rightness. But as a kid, if you're able to talk well, if you're able to argue well, mm -hmm. we often turn to those kids and say, you would make a good lawyer. Mm -hmm. So that sunk in. I, I didn't have my own self-identity. The concept of being a lawyer was it was a noble profession. And you made a lot of money. So from grade two on, I wanted to be a lawyer. So my trajectory was always on that path. What's the easiest way for me to get to law school? Well, instead of following the sciences in, in undergrad, because I was very strong in math and science, I went into the social science. But 
in retrospect, the reason why I went into social science is because I love observing human behavior. Sure. So it, 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 in retrospect, when you're a lawyer to do that too, right? Well, it, it, it does, but I don't think I recognize no. at that point in time that it was just the straightest path to get to law school. I can get the higher grades in social science uh, to then get to law school. And then I went from there. It's now that I'm reflecting on things and I'm like, wow, you know, the opportunity for me really was to learn about people. So you always had that social aspect to yourself. I did. And when you're, when you, when you started heading off to law school, um, what, what were your first like impressions when you got there? Uh, cause now you're, you're not studying social science anymore. You're not studying psychology. You're starting to study, you know, tort and law and all these other things. Um, how did that taste at first? <laughs> well, you, I don't want to say it was an awful experience, but I think law school has it wrong. Mm -hmm. They identify these things as building rapport or getting to know, or, or even treating people as if they're human beings. But when you, when you had first, when you first gotten there, I mean, let's imagine, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're just arriving into Edmonton. You're excited about your future, mm -hmm. right? So everything that kind of comes your way, it's like, okay, so this is what it's about. So let's. Let's dive in. Or, well, I, I mean, I think that that initial for me, yeah, it, it came crashing down kind of quickly because you realize how ultra competitive mm -hmm. it is. Yeah, so you go to Edmonton, and you notice the same. It's ultra competitive. Mm -hmm. um, you, usually, it, when we're in Toronto, we hear that about Toronto and Bay Street and versus other parts of Canada. But you're saying that you notice this. It's noticed that everyone. <laughs> and, and, and I'm just. And it, it's not just law school. I just the culture that, of the university. Too. Yeah, I or the culture of a lot of curriculum. Professional schools, yeah. period, have that. You know, you're second guessing yourself. The the concept of imposter syndrome. Do I really belong here? Mm -hmm. Well, you had that going in. I knew I belong there. Well, it, maybe not going in. I think it's healthy to to keep your ego in check. Uh, as you go along in life, but certainly the experience that I went through, yeah, I don't deserve to be here. These people are alive. The, just listening to people speak in the classroom, you would have people, I swear to God, that they would be going through the dictionary the night before to come up with the most complicated words that they can to explain a simple situation, which really, if you think about it, has become the nature of of, of how law tends to be practiced, but it was, it was intimidating. And, and when I was there, um, you know, there were, I have my moments where I'm like, should I continue this? Is this what I want? Then you start to recognize that, you know, we had situation. I remember the constitutional question we were asked was, can Canada or can Quebec legally secede from Canada? Uh, which yeah, was a topic at the time. time back then. The referendum was just happening. Right. And I remember people, because back then you didn't have access to the cases through the internet. Yeah. The internet was still in its infancy at that point, certainly as a research tool. People tearing articles out of books in the library so that nobody else could find it, so that they would have the nugget or the gem. 
you know, I, I, I remember that happening in that exercise and it was like, so it wasn't about so lifting this, people up. It was, so you had this thought, um, yeah. in, in early, early days, somewhere in the middle, help me kind of place it. Well, I, I was only in Edmonton for, for one year. For one year. And so it was, it's a fairly rapid, uh, mm. track, uh, to, to come to those determinations. Uh, what do you, what do you say to yourself at that point? Is it like, uh, you're already pot committed, you're invested, so you got to push through, uh, start, 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 ignore, or were there thoughts of like, Hey, I already went and opened my big mouth that I'm going to go be a lawyer now. And there's this expectation on me. Was it something internally that drove you or would you say there were also external factors that drove you to just keep moving forward? Yeah, I think it's all of the above, right? You don't- I don't think we reflect when we're that young. We don't really, we're just, I, I know for myself, reflect. we just kind of Bro, go through the motion. If you look yeah. back on it now, there was something, right? Because sometimes it happens. I remember it happening as well. Uh, everyone recalls going, oh, hold on a second. Was it myself telling myself this or was it something I had- kind of set myself up for, I'm going to go be this. Now I got to deliver, I got to finish. And, um, sometimes it's in some cases it's family saying like, we're paying for this or their pressure is like, you're going to turn out to be this. Uh, so, you know, that it, it, it could be sometimes more one than the other, but I'm just curious what it was for you. Yeah. I, and that's a great question. I, I, I think in, uh, on reflection, it was more me. The family came in, not because I was the first to go to university in my family. Um, so there was no external pressure. I think, I think my parents were proud of the fact that I had achieved to that level, but to walk away from that, you're still worried about the disappointment that they might feel. Well, wait a second. Sure. This is something that you've been talking about, Dave, for your whole life you know, and not seeing it through. So that, that part of it for sure, but it wasn't an applied pressure from them. It was more the pressure from within that you got to stay this course. You've, uh, you've invested this much in it because I didn't have, uh, I paid for my own schooling. By that point, my parents had exhausted everything that they had saved for, uh, because we didn't have RESPs back then. Sure. So I think I, my parents had enough save for me to get through university for about two years. And then I was on the OSAP track after that. So you, you first start noticing that the, these things start standing out to you. You talk about people ripping pages out. Um, mm -hmm. Isn't there a term in law called disclosure <laughs> that, that tells you that anyway, that's something else altogether. <laughs> but the, the point is, is that uh, you notice this behavior. Um, what I'm curious to know is that you know, when we're, when you're studying this and it, this may, this is something that I wonder about now. I went the business route mm -hmm. you know, I went through, through business and then it was going to be business into law maybe. Right. But I don't ever remember there being many courses or maybe I didn't just take them. Maybe they were electives, uh, but it, you know, to do with, um, you know, ethics and, and, and etiquette in terms of how to deal with your peers and so on. It was, I remember the competition. I remember the competition, but I remember there being a lot of talk other than maybe a course on ethics that you have to take because of it's a requirement. Yeah. But you read through it. There isn't really, there isn't, there hadn't really been a, a discussion on, look guys, this actually applies to us right now. And here's how, right. It was more like, it's a textbook, read it finish the assignments, do the test, examine, 
one well, more done. Check that off the list. Law school taught me how to take a case to the Supreme Court of Canada and how to argue the law and how to piece everything together. Well, when you, statistically speaking, very few cases ever make it mm -hmm. that far. Those skills that you speak of, I call necessary skills, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but they're, they're viewed as soft skills. Soft skills, right. Right? You know, when, when I speak about um, reform and change and, and how we, as a culture, as the legal culture needs to view things, we're dealing with, even if you're dealing with corporations, you're dealing with human beings. And, and the systems that we've created around us all only speak about law because that's my area of expertise. But I suspect that if we looked into other areas, uh, having read Dr. Mate's work, um, the reality is it's a dehumanizing process. So that, that's what we can say about the system that's out there. But in our own personal journey, do we realize, I guess this is one of the things I'm, I'm, like, I'm wondering about now is you're progressing in your professional life. You know, as you're progressing as a professional, we're at this time, you know, early, late teens, early twenties, right? Mm -hmm. And we're going to, we're looking to the future. We're going to be something. Yeah. And you, we talked about kind of the, the, the bias we had going in. This is a noble profession um, and it's going to make money. So there's, there's a high level of motivation to, to gain this status. Um, so on your way in, you don't say to yourself, I'm becoming less human. You don't no. say that to yourself. No, you, you show yourself. How, how do you, you know, you just keep going. So what you other. Do, you do, but I questioned myself along the way. I mean, I remember my third year of law school. Um, I took a course in clinical advocacy. It was supposed to go hand in hand with working in the, the law clinic. Uh, I didn't do that part of it, but I took the clinical advocacy course. And what I presented on at the time is is was kind of a precursor to what's now known as collaborative law. I, I talked about holistic practitioners within law. Um, so what clinical advocacy would that be like if there is an extenuating circumstance for someone, like if they had an addiction issue or no, no, no. health or like, that's what I think of when I think of it. You, in <laughs> your lens, yeah. uh, clinical advocacy within law school was there was an extension, there was a clinic a legal clinic okay. that was providing students were running it, providing uh, advice oh. and uh, their expertise for people navigating on certain issues. We had to do a major project. And so I talked about holistic, which is where I brought in the concept of having, you know, social workers, psychologists, financial people, different people with different expertise um, so that I can stick to, uh, really, I can stay in my lane. Law is what I know. But you have to be able to build those. Uh, so, so it was always so you're there. Questioning certain things along the way. Is you, Absolutely, you come out, you get your your law degree. Um, it's a big milestone. Mm -hmm. It's a big moment in life. Um, at that point in time, you now know that your next step is you're going to go join. I guess is it a law firm or did you go work in government? What did you What did you decide yeah, to pursue next? Really, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I think at that point I was looking for the experience being exposed to different areas uh so the, the full service experience now what i didn't do at that point was i had no desire of going to toronto majority of the articling jobs are in toronto mm -hmm. i eschewed that so that i could 
focus on. I wanted a community that wasn't Windsor. I wasn't looking to stay in Windsor, but comparable size. I actually focused on London. Uh, I had had a few interviews there. Nothing panned out. Had a couple of interviews in Hamilton. Um, and if real kind of law were you looking into, like for the the? For- I wanted the breadth of the experience, just like a multidisciplinary. Yeah, at that point, what you wanted to you wanted to get into a firm that practiced everything. Okay. So you wanted a firm as opposed to a sole practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wanted exposure to the to the civil yeah. law, to family law. Did, did you do articling? You had to do articling, obviously. And where where did you article, and what kind of firm? Did well. What ended up happening was I got no jobs. I came back to law school in the in September of, I guess it would have been 1996. So 96, 97 was my last year. And how people looked down on you if you didn't already have an articling job. I remember one conversation with, and I was standing with a group of people, and uh, I, I wasn't particularly fond of this person, but I remember them saying, uh, it was really important because it was status. Uh, professional schools tend to be that way. Law school was definitely like that. Turning to me and saying, so where, where are you working for uh, articling? I said, well, I don't have a job yet. And he literally looked me in the eye. Then he turned away from me physically and didn't communicate with me again. Now, do I think that was intentional? No. But it's what, we're, what we were taught, that high-level competition. What ended up happening was well, I, that, in that moment, when that happens, yes. okay, so what is what goes on then in your mind at that moment going, I got to go get a job well, no matter what, or no. I'm fine. No. <laughs> what do you say to yourself at that point? It was more like, who do you think? You said it was a reflection this, of this him, is, not you. Yeah, th- th- this is what we're building up to be. Yeah. So you never thought yourself lesser because some guy did that? I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. Because that's know, the true. Pressure, I right? that. That's the pressure. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you don't belong. You're not good enough. If this, if that. Uh, versus you might have just said like. But I also knew that, uh, you know, I had given up applying to an area where, you know, maybe 60, 70% of the jobs were situated. I had, so I had to carry that too. I had to take ownership of that myself. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely, uh, you know, and I never talked to that person again. That person sure. probably doesn't even realize that in that moment they did that because but you didn't, didn't intend. Did you, did you say to yourself at that point, you know, no, I'm okay because, you know, no. here's what gives me my worth. I didn't think I was ever going to get a job. It's like when you break up with your first partner, you never think you're going to find somebody else again. I was, you know, hey, I mean, crestfallen is probably the word that I felt at that point, but you persevere. And, and what ended up happening was I found a job in Waterloo, uh, Kitchener, Waterloo was not even on my radar. Um, and things happen for a reason. I do believe that. And so I ended up there and it's been the most incredible community to not only grow my professional roots, uh, meet some incredible people along the way, but also to raise a family. You know, we... We're fortunate in that when we moved to Waterloo Region, um, you know, it hadn't grown. BlackBerry was in its very nascent yeah. stage. Right, BlackBerry was, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. I read something <laughs> I about BlackBerry this morning, um, but, but it was, 
you know, was growing, it hadn't yet become uh, the the northern tech center that it it it's seen as now. So to be there through that evolution of that community, like an old German farming community, was pretty cool. When I, and I'm just thinking about it right now, uh, I hadn't necessarily thought about that. Company. What landed you in, in, in Waterloo then? I got a, I got an articling job at, uh, at a fantastic firm, uh, to this day. Was uh, it like a full service firm? Full service firm. Forbes. Okay. Uh, full service firm. Um, and at the time, uh, one of my mentors, so the principal was a younger lawyer. He's a few years older than me. He and I still keep in touch. He's very involved in collaborative law. And in fact, he and I and another individual were the co-chairs before I had stepped away from law in two th- at the end of 2019. Um, so, so, I, so that's a great place to get started, get some, some great yeah. mentoring. Well, in, the one mentor ended up becoming a judge and he had a, uh, back then they didn't, so federal prosecutions of different things got, uh, were privately outsourced. So he was a federal prosecutor doing some high level drug cases. And I was reading through wiretaps. I remember it was, it was just an incredible experience, you know, and it, it, just such diverse personalities to be able to walk away from. So I, I treasure that experience. The only, actually the only thing that, that I somewhat regret is that they didn't at the time because of their space and, and their situation, they weren't able to keep me on because it was a, a an incredible group of individuals. So uh, that that you're off to a great start because being around those kind of people mm-hmm. in in this law, it's uh, in this sort of profession, uh, it's that's it, not often the first stories we hear about articling and when they, they you hear oh. about going out there and working. I don't know how many hours a week are you supposed to work if you're supposed to be a self-respecting lawyer? What, what is it? What's the number? Well, like, and I probably told myself that like I was working more than I should not because they asked me to, but yeah, I mean, I was putting in 60, 70 yeah. hours a week, uh, probably not in articling, but once I started on my own weekends were, there was no such thing as weekends. You fit in things when you could fit them in. And where did you learn that? Like, how did you, how did it come up? upon you that that's a good question work culture yeah well yeah Yeah. it's a good question it's almost like there's a lot that we take away from our professional schools that seems to be inherent it becomes the norm um i can't say that anybody ever said to me other than i need you to finish this task that the expectation is that you work 70 hours to do it but we think that we need to um, we think that that's, well, that's just what we do. Those are the things that I started to question over time. Hey, isn't that interesting? So we, we, we question it, but we keep going. But I didn't question it then. Oh, so I started you questioning question it, it until later on, like, okay. what the hell am I doing here? You what know? made you notice it though, that when you did bring awareness to it? What made me notice it? Uh, I think I, I had to look within myself and notice how much I had given up. You noticed that you, like you noticed you'd start giving up. Well, I, what did you know? Especially kids. Once, once you start having kids yeah. and it's like, wait, I can't be there for, you know, and I, I, I try, I was trying to balance it all. Yeah. Sure. Thankfully, Andrea was staying at home. Uh, and, and you know, what I've come to realize over time is that she was shoring up 
the shortfalls that were in the home so that I could continue to pursue it. And she didn't want to be the one to pull me back down. But I mean, she's talked to me about it again in retrospect, but it was just, this is what you do. You have to work hard. Um, the work ethic probably came from my dad. You, you know, it's a good thing to have a strong work ethic. Absolutely. Absolutely. But work ethic balanced with sacrifice and, and taking, uh, taking a deeper look at it. And sometimes there's a difference between, I don't know, I'm, I'm just thinking about my life or different um, awareness of different people's lives that I've worked with is sometimes you need to do that 60-hour work week just to push through to get started or to get the momentum in your career going, right? You build that kind of momentum. But once we have our um, bearings, if you will, or our footing, we don't pay attention that we we have the momentum that we were seeking to get off the ground and we don't have to keep going like that, but we'd never stop to think about it. And you just have this kind of like circular wheel that just keeps going. And the hamster. Yeah. I call it, I call it always at startup because when we're done with startup, we're starting now when we finish with one level, when we've mastered it, someone else comes along where there's this feeling, you know, the way you just described it, someone looks at you and then turns the other way because you don't have this yet. You know, mm-hmm. so now you're not like in that next group of people. <laughs> so you're starting up there. <laughs> and then when you get done you're to the, the top, <laughs> now you're starting up somewhere else. So you're always in startup. You know, it's, it never, it never really settles. And I find in, 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 uh, in the pursuit of greatness or whatever. And it feels like you're catching up too, right? The startup is catch up because somebody always knows more yeah. than I do. And, and this, you know, I, I, I think, again, where does this come from? I mean, I, I, these are just natural things that we're picking up that are- It's called capitalism, baby. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Go get as much as you can. It is. And it's yours for the taking. It is. But it's, there's also something to do with, you know, realizing that, look, we've got a lot of potential, mm-hmm. right? We've got a lot of capability. Look at all the good that you could be doing. There's These are all the things that drive us too, right? You're effective. You're making money. <laughs> you're providing- for you know for andrea and the kids right you, you're doing something good and you're leading a, a more comfortable life you're starting to plan about their future and all the things that they could have that you might not have had right you're thinking about all those things yeah. and those become your motivators to just keep on to keep trucking but it, it, stopping along the way and recognizing okay in the pursuit of this so what did you sacrifice what did we sacrifice yeah. is is extremely important um, it, it, you know, and fortunately, you know, I make it sound worse than it was. It was, I was there for ball games. I was able to coach. Um, it just meant that I was finding other time. Sleep as much that night or other time. Well, I mean, whenever I was in trial, I mean, I, I taught, I call myself a recovering litigator yeah. when I was litigating. I mean, I was pretty fierce at how I, uh, conducted a trial and I, I remember, I would sleep in a separate part of the house. In our first house, it was, we had basement, seriously, with a futon. And I would sleep because I had all my papers spread around and I would wake up because I thought of a line of cross-examination would come to me in my sleep and I'd write it out. And then some, some days I'd look at it and I'm like, that was pretty calm. I, I would, I love hearing this because like no one talks about this. I would have, um, I would get, 
they used to get these, I don't know if you can do it anymore, the Toronto Star, I just get a couple of these spools and I would put this spool of paper and I create a chronological timeline <laughs> and I would have the timeline of the case and then all my evidence, because you, you can't flag your evidence on, I, I have to like know exactly where everything is. So I have a stack like this and I just memorized the timeline and I would literally sleep with my notes around me. I'd wake up. I would be like, okay, if this they come is, at and me. And if, if I get asked right. this, this is what I'm going yeah, to Yeah, you say. wake up. You're like, oh, what if they come at me this way? How am I going to handle that? I, can you imagine being a witness? Like I, I, I couldn't imagine being a witness in a trial if I was cross-examined. My impetus my reason for being when i was cross-examining somebody was to break them yes right i would i would incessantly go at it and if i realized that i couldn't gain traction which wasn't very often there was always something i could pick at yeah in family law people they're replete with affidavits all over the place you, you if you have 10 or 12 20 affidavits in a particular action i guarantee you that there's, There's an inconsistency somewhere. I knew your stuff better than you did. When yeah. you got up there, you were in my sights. That's what that's what litigation was. It, it is so you it's, you live in it. You live in trial. You just you're you're physically. So where did you? A guy like who who comes through your path all of a sudden. I'm I'm not getting it. You're this guy who has an issue with how people are ripping papers out. of. I'm going to remember that for a while. Uh, and then you decide you enjoy litigating. And so you're going to go after it. You had choices. You could have gone anywhere else. You chose litigating, yeah, right? Your choices were and limited. And it's not a bad thing to be yeah. either. Like, you know, you're, it's, an, it's needed, right? So your, your, your choices were limited. I mean, I remember one of my mentors said to me, you don't take cases on to settle them. Right. And, and I remember my response, I, I challenged him on that and I said, okay, but what about family law? Yeah. Like family law is the worst possible. Like I recognize that. I recognize that in law school it was the worst possible area, this battle zone. I mean, you think about all the war analogies that we use, uh, when we're custody battle, mm -hmm. it's a war. Th those analogies are very violent language in family law. Um, but I just accepted that, okay, system well, does a student, right? So the system so. doesn't work great. Everybody seems to be chirping about how the system isn't the greatest, but this is the best system that we have. So we keep beating our heads against that brick wall. And at some point I recognize that if I keep doing it, I'll end up with brain damage. So I, I took myself. The Kool -Aid. Well, I drank the Kool-Aid initially. But then I pulled myself out completely. Once I made that decision in 2016, and I made that decision because of the things that I was encountering. Did you become specialized in family law then and practice primarily within that, or did you litigate across the board then? No, I, I was family law. So when I my first job was with a criminal lawyer, uh, he had there was a lot of intersection between criminal law and family law. Mm -hmm. So I would deal with the family law cases. I did a lot of child protection work. Um, I actually had a contract at one point with the Children's Aid Society, but when it came to this, like when it, so you asked me back to your question, how does my mindset then take me in that direction? Yeah. It's the suspending the disbelief. It's a lot of cognitive dissonance, mm -hmm. right? This is what I'm expected to do. It may not fit in with what my values are, but this is the way that it's done. I was... 
and I would, I would gear myself up for these cross examinations. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty. I imagine there's a high to it, right? When you're I, up sure, there and when it's over, it's, <laughs> but it's and it is. It's a bit because again, that system is predicated on winning adversarialness. Yeah, yes. but it, it, it's is winning. It's it's dehumanizing right from the start. We refer to people not as people, but as applicants and respondents and clients. All of the language you yourself said you just earlier on, you were saying, Hey, if what something is like, I had you in my sights. Mm -hmm. And, um, so like it's either you do that or you're not a lawyer or you're not doing your job. Um, and what I'm curious to see is that, and I, I notice this consistently in every time, you know, every part of your, your journey or your story is that it didn't sit right with you. Mm -mm. But something told you that you have to keep going. Uh, maybe because you're an honorable person, actually, that you feel like you have to keep going doing something that you feel is dishonorable. But because you're honorable, because, hey, listen, I've signed up to be this. This is my job. I got to do it. So it's interesting how just the honor in you but when you takes you forward in, a, in what you might consider to be a, a path that is dehumanize what what pulls you out of it though is i'm know. trying to understand what pulled you into it first <laughs> you're so busy the cognitive dissonance i i feel you just kind of like loop in it for a long time it's like you are so realize it's happening because that's 10 years you just talked about going by you, your don't. your archetype of what a lawyer is is that it's yeah. though it's 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 you know growing up you know f lee bailey right and, and even when i was in law school the O.J. Simpson trial was going on, yeah. and that was the zealous advocacy. Yeah. Leave no stone unturned. This is what the, if the system works, then it will be able to sort out the truth from the lie, but you have a role to play in that, and that's to zealously advocate for were, your client. Were there other things that kind of reinforced it for you? For example, I'm going to go back to that that uh, scenario where there's a guy looking at you saying, have you articled somewhere? Was there now a similar sort of guy saying, hey, so what are you working on? And now you did have an answer for them. And instead of looking away, they kept looking at you saying, okay, now you're part of this. Was there some reinforcement to, to the whole thing? Do you know what I'm saying? The reinforcement was getting favorable judgments mm -hmm. right, and cost awards. Right. right? I mean... I was once asked, what was your greatest day in court? And this is, I, I was asked this when I was being trained as a mediator. What was your greatest day in court? And I remember thinking about that. And it came to me pretty quickly. It was a, a case where a parent had absconded with a child a week before the other parent's visits were to become overnight. Um, I effectively advocated to get that child place with the parent who had never had an overnight with the child since the child was very young. Um, and, and as is, so the best day was getting that judgment, 36 pages of brilliance where I had done my job. This was my, the pat on the back, the external validation that I was getting from the court along with a massive costs award. And then recognizing that, and I forget whether was six months or a year later that parent came back to me because they now don't have any effective communication skills you've taken that away when i cross-examine you you don't hold it against me 
you hold it against the other person. And in fact, that other parent had called me at one point to say, well, now that you're not representing this person, can you represent me? Right? So they don't see me as the enemy uh, after the fact. And then I found out uh, that I think it was seven years later, the child committed suicide. We don't do longitudinal studies no. of the impact of what we do. Yeah. And we need to. We need to start bearing witness yeah. to what the effects of this, uh, in my view, terribly broken system are. Mm -hmm. Right? It, it pay was good and there was no oh, and I can the consequences were not. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I was like in child or um, school social work, mm -hmm. so 30 to 40% any given year, my kids were actively suicidal of my clinical caseload and <clears throat> I started just looking at the backgrounds of them and I remember one year 50% of my kids there was only like six but three of of the six was um they had section 112 assessments mm -hmm. earlier in their youth so mm -hmm. like they were six seven years old yep. and I had them as teenagers now and so as a person that did those assessments <laughs> and then just to see similar children it is we don't follow enough and the damage that we do as participants in the system is sometimes overwhelming and so i think the longer you're in it you i remember you mentioned 2016 like you had a moment in 2016 that's so. when i found out this this kid so there, yeah himself. so that's oh, the thing so is that we go. have these that's moments where we're like oh shit we thought we were helping mm -hmm. and what we're doing is being weaponized not for the nurturing or the helping of kids because i know that's been hard for me to struggle struggle mm -hmm. and chew with so like what was 2016 you found out this child yeah. died by suicide and then take us through that yeah well so so the flip side so the my best day in court was and i, I i've spoken about this i hold up the it's decision the same case it's it's the same case and the worst day as a lawyer was this kid's life being reduced to two paragraphs yeah and that was her obituary mm -hmm. right and the first time i told the story was actually the first time i introduced myself as hi i'm dave i'm a recovering litigator <laughs> and you, you heard some chuckles in the crowd and then i because i was presenting the person who had asked me the question her name is jennifer Souser. jennifer had asked me what was your best day as a lawyer and that's what caused me to, okay, so what was my best day? What was my worst day? And it was the same case. Mm -hmm. And when I held up that obituary, you you heard people gasping. Yeah. Right? What, what, did, what did you say to Andrea that day? I don't know that I said anything to mm -hmm. her. I, this I, is something you just kept to yourself. And Yeah. I mean, this time. is what I was expected to be, and I was successful at it. But I, uh, you know, I don't, I, it takes me a little while to process things too. So I don't know that I, I necessarily saw the impact that it had on me uh, at that point. But, it, you know, what I started to do was to extricate myself from those. I did, you know, coincidentally, I kept my contract mm -hmm. with the Office of the Children's Lawyer because my approach Changes, was. yeah. Well, and and I think my approach always had been, yeah. How can I help this family gain peace by using the wisdom that this young person is sharing with me and entrusting me with? Mm -hmm. How can I use that? So my my OCL cases very rarely went to trial because I was able to 
approach it from a different way. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to be, although I was an advocate for the child and a lawyer in every sense of the word representing their interests and what they're telling me, I could still find a way to utilize that to have people take a step back from the vitriol and the acrimony that the system tends to so, inflame and come to a resolution. Mm-hmm. Well, that, what that tells me is that if the system enables you to do it that way, then it's a matter of choice then. Well, it's always a matter of choice. There you go. Uh, no, but so are you asking me, is it a matter of choice for me or is it a matter of choice for... If you could go for one day being you know, about the win and mm-hmm. people in your sights mm-hmm. in, in the same system where the next day you could go to trying to make sure everybody comes out the way you just described it. The system hasn't changed. You just chose to do it differently. That's right. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's right. So it, it, that tells me it's not a systematic thing then. It's a personal choice. Well, it's a personal choice, but yet I see so many people, and I struggled. So before 2016, I struggled playing both sides. Right. Maybe it's and a culture within the system. Well, I, I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. And I think sometimes you're left to feel inferior if you're not that advocate. That uh, and I, Some of the things that I see, and this is where I, I enjoy my role actually more as a mediator. Right. Because I can sit back, not too long ago I was brought in to help with the facilitated settlement meeting where things had become so polarized and entrenched over the course of years. And I was brought in and in the course of a day was able to help these people, at least for the moment, you know, I I don't think that there was anything magical, get unstuck to see that there was a bigger picture and come to a resolution on the eve of trial Um, as that fresh perspective coming in because the more that we immerse ourselves into something i mean you can hear the passion in my voice when i talk about things i'm immersed in this so sometimes i need that outside person to be able to say to me you know what dave have you thought about this or tell me more about that teasing out those curious questions to get me thinking outside of my own head to be able to look at things maybe a different way Right. You know, I, I don't. The, the, it, my career as a lawyer has left a lot of wounds and a lot of scars. Um, you know, but you're right. I made a choice and I've decided. That said, I still find that there's that wanting to pull back in because this is what the archetype of a lawyer is. You're not a lawyer if you do it that way. Mm-hmm. So you, that's when you uh, have to find your own tribe. And, yeah. and, the and the people, piece, it's yeah. a cultural piece too. So that's why you, when you said that, yeah. Trina, I, I, it resonated with yeah. me. Yeah, because, I mean, it's still the same legal system at the end of the day. It's, just, it's still using the same knowledge that you have. Mm-hmm. And look at you, you're doing it, you're doing it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I asked about the reinforcements as well. Because that's how culture works. There's reinforcement at some point. Mm-hmm. There's a reward. Um, did you find that now, and, and what I'm hearing you talk about really is that you started placing different values on what reward meant, uh, earlier on. You have to do that intrinsically, but Mm -hmm. you did it. I I did, I did, but the system still values winning 
and and and, and uh, the system and there's judgment and competition. Sorry, within the system as well, right? So, so that's what I'm wondering about. So you went from, and this is the hard part for a lot of people to do. I find, right, is that we. And I don't think it's it's exclusive to law. I think it's it's out there in a lot of different places. But when you when we look at it, there is a lot of emphasis put on the win. There is a lot of emphasis put on the monetary rewards and things. Mm-hmm. It happens in business mm-hmm. all the time. But where did you start going from saying, "Hey, I will make less"? You had to know this. I'm going to make less money doing it this way. Um, I'm not going to get the kudos for the win, right? Those those external reinforcements are not going to be there anymore, right? But from a business standpoint, it was half of what you said at the beginning when you said you were pursuing law, but right? But you can still, from a business standpoint, still right. make money doing it that way. You're holding true to your value. Yeah. It, 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 there's a huge shift that still needs to happen. There, We hear a lot being discussed particularly within family law uh the advent of social media i can tell you that most of those people that i've come across don't uh don't walk the talk uh but i do and i'm going to continue to i'm going to continue doing it this way if people my i don't see my role as trying to get people to follow me the reality is if what i'm doing i'm doing well and I'm staying true to myself, which is important to me, and is effective, people will naturally follow. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the key right there, is that the reward is being true to yourself. And then, you know, you, you value that now, being true to yourself. It seems to me that, you know, what your, your journey that you've gone through is probably very similar to what a lot of people go through right from when they start out in law school and they see certain behavior, right, which... They're like, wait, this this doesn't look mm-hmm. like how it ought to ought to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, ripping pages out of a book you shouldn't be tearing pages, right? I mean, out of a journal. And, and we are the we are the people who are supporting the legal system here. We're right. So if that's the if you if you notice that and you kept noticing it, you couldn't have been the only one who noticed it, right? Mm-hmm. So as people notice this going on and on, at some point in time, they just they they bury that they 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 stop listening to that that voice mm-hmm. and you just kept listening to this voice inside your head but you at some point in time said maybe you talk about 2016 being the, a tipping point and you didn't even realize it maybe even when it happened at that moment you got the news it kind of didn't sit well with you that day but then you just kept on you kept on going but when you look back it's like a the accumulation of all of these tipping points that finally got you to see it and you just said to yourself one day, you know what, this this is how I'm going to do it. Now, on that day when you decided, I, I mean, you might not be able to pinpoint the day, there had to have been a thought going, there's going to be consequences for this. Um, well, I think the immediate thought is, is back to what you had just said, am I going to be able to sustain myself doing mm-hmm. this? What is What storm will I have to weather? to stay true to myself. I mean, fortunately at that point, I was quite immersed in collaborative law and I was in the midst of taking my uh, mediation courses. Uh, so I was on that path, but yeah, you, you absolutely, am I going to be able to feed myself and my mm-hmm. family? Uh, so those are the things that, that you, you start to worry about. 
But again, I was able to do that having practiced for 17 years. Mm -hmm. I started practicing in 1999. You knew you were going to be fine. Yeah, I had, the inertia was in my favor. Now, stepping away from practicing law in 2019 and just pulling the cord completely. So did you like reevaluate your values to pull that cord? Out. Okay, there you yeah. So what did that look like? How does that, yeah, when do you know you're burning up? I, 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 I don't, I, again, the burnout is not a single event. It's a process. Yeah, sure. And... Um, I think for about a year prior to, I was open to opportunities and the opportunities that I was looking at weren't in law at all. Um, and where I ended up going, I, I, you want to talk about a complete change. Of course, here's, here's a person who since grade two has wanted to go to law school to become a lawyer, to become that noble professional, to make a lot of money, uh, in my litigation stage wanted to, you know, really effectively destroy the other person on there and win my cases to saying, you know what, I've kind of had it. This, this system is so resistant to change and I feel like I'm kind of on my own and I wasn't completely on my own. There were a few people that believed the way that, but not enough in my view. So I applied for this job with a charity and, uh, you know, a charity that helped children who were going through their own trauma because they had witnessed or been victims of uh, violence and abuse or had witnessed a crime and were going to have to testify. And I went there, fish out of water. I had never run, uh, done anything like that because I had been in law my whole life. That it, makes sense. You're trying to you're trying to keep that balance to. I think to there yourself. was a value to it yeah. that caused me to gravitate towards this charity in particular. Yeah. Is that when you started experiencing the burnout? Is that like, cause it was just too much on your plate. So when you said burnout, would it, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in any given year I had in, you know, Trina with, with having the office of the children's lawyer, you have as a lawyer, you have files that are active, mm-hmm. then you have files that are dormant, but they're going to come back. So, I mean, at any given time I had 50 to a hundred cases going on because I was also assisting families going through the transition of separation, divorce, um, trying to do that in a culture that values winning. I see it in collaborative all the time. Mm -hmm. People talk about collaboration and it's not that it's still about winning. I see the mentality that a lot of these lawyers hold where they can't, um, they, they can't consider that there may be other perspectives. They say, just because you say you're collaborative. Mm-hmm. And I was actually speaking about this before I stepped away from law. Mm-hmm. Let's really evaluate what collaboration means. Mm-hmm. It means valuing everybody's role and everybody's perspective at the table and then figuring out a way to move forward. Mm-hmm. Law does not lend itself to collaboration to no. or to perspective. Yeah. So, so you had 50 to 100 cases going, yeah. you're on fire. That's a yeah. Oh, I was at the, I mean, I was at the top, right? I was, is I that, was. Is that, I don't know what a lot is or what's well, an achievement. I, I mean, in terms of my, you know, I wasn't suffering financially. Was I the highest paid lawyer? No. Uh, but my impetus was to help people going through this and really help kids. I, the perspective that I gained as a children's lawyer was that 
you know what? There are these individuals, these human beings, aside from the parents, that mm-hmm. that really require us to listen to them and to wrap around them. Mm-hmm. But what happened was I stepped away. I was getting all kinds of collaborative files. I wasn't, you know, I, I just, I had had it. I wanted, so what do I do? I pull the plug, send all of the clients that I had at that point out to lawyers that I respected. I didn't sell my practice. I didn't try and make money from it. Um, you know, although perhaps I could have, um, that wasn't what my goal was. And I stepped away, but the burnout didn't go away. Right. I, I, the burnout stayed. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I lasted at the charity for about a year and a half, recognized that the burnout was still there. You know, my mom had passed away early on in COVID. Um, my grandmother was one of the first cases in Windsor uh, of COVID, went in with a, a pretty sharp mind and came out, and she, she hasn't been the same. Describe, describe though, when you said the burnout. Yeah, what is it? Yeah, describe that. What does that feel like to a, mm. a seasoned you know, lawyer? How do you know you're burning out? You just don't want to do it anymore. I can, you know, Lost I, the motivation. I, I could picture myself. Yeah, I don't know that the motivation loss was there. I mean, I still effectively assisted people. I just mm-hmm. didn't want to do it anymore. I just saw myself, uh, you know, when you, when you can see yourself pulling up stakes and doing something that's so completely different from what you've ever done, because even though the charity aligned with how I had done things, my role within the charity was as the executive director. That's something that I've never done. Uh, I was a sole practitioner. Now I go to managing 15, 16 people within this organization. Uh, and then you throw COVID on top of that, where charities at that point didn't know whether there was going to be another check coming and what was going to happen. The donors uh, decreased because there was a, a blip with, uh, with their investments, all kinds of things. But I just recognized I had never given myself and throughout my career, I didn't recharge. So what did it look like? I was just, I was exhausted mentally, physically. Um, I, I just didn't really have an interest in doing anything that had a purpose. You know what I did the first month after I left the charity? Um, I had purchased a house down in Windsor because uh, the, for those who have kids in, in university, residence is outrageous. <laughs> yes. So I bought a house in Windsor. Yeah. And so there was it's some, actually cheaper. <laughs> it, it was cheaper <laughs> yeah. because I could, there, there are other tenants in the house. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went down to Windsor and with my dad and spent a month painting and just doing. So uh, you just took time out. Just took time out and just things that didn't require me to think beyond, okay, so what color palette right. do I want to put together? What do we want to do with this? Getting back to basics again. Getting back to basics. Yeah. And then I took the next eight months and I didn't work at all. And then I... Isn't that so amazing when you've had this lifestyle the sabbatical? go, 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 and then you have that... When you finally let it sink yes. in. Yes. Yes. And so when you were doing this, I mean, this is this is why they actually talk about taking sabbaticals like mm-hmm. this, not just a vacation for two weeks. Um 
and it's it's exactly what the path that you follow. I mean, it's so it's so consistent. There is like you know, there's this ambition. There's going out. There's winning. They're saying this is not enough. Then there's I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> it, the sto- it's very very consistent with yeah. the stories you hear. Yeah. And then there is the break, and then there is the epiphany, <laughs> right? And in that break, you're reflecting on all the years of all the cases and all those moments and now you're starting to see the pattern in yourself like because you're stepping outside of yourself now right what did you see then well i mean it, it was a bumpy road it's probably sure. pretty uncomfortable i know for me it was really it, uncomfortable it, at first you know yeah. I, andrea I, it was i'm sure there are days where she'd tell you it was a roller coaster with me you know not knowing uh, my affect or, or mood on a particular day. And mm-hmm. she became very adept because even when I was practicing, um, you didn't know how the day went. So when I would come in, it, those that love us become very adept at picking up on on where we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she, she had done that. And even to step away, like I left home for a month to go down to Windsor Mm -hmm. and that was emotional uh for her and for I and for the kids because you're you're gone yeah well and and, you know I think you question is there something that you're not getting here but it wasn't that at all it was just being able to get outside my own head so it was a roller coaster I think around September um so I was down in Windsor came so back how many home. months was that then? so about uh, so six months okay. uh, four or five six months <laughs> and september i started feeling the itch again but it was different this time it was for me the, this leg of my career um i hope to make money but that's not my i want to it's impact as i take this journey going forward it's about impact it's about you know, whether you want to call it something cliche like legacy, uh, it's what impact am I going to have? How am I going to make things better? You know, I see myself in legal reform. Mm-hmm. And legal reform to me is let's hold the mirror up to Look at the ourselves. system and the profession. Say, do you like what you see? It doesn't have to be me saying this is my, because that's it. What I'm sharing is my experience. Mm-hmm. It's not everybody's experience. You know, in a, time right now when there's a lot of talk about mental health and mental wellness was it you who were saying to me the what lawyers the legal industry and what lawyers are going through in terms of their mental health and the challenges that they're facing was it i think he's you yeah they're the like they're the number one in profession of suit for suicidality at this point so um and it wasn't always that no that's right the, lawyers that's, weren't that's, even in the top five i don't know and i've seen it um, I've seen it just in my relationships with a lot of lawyers and beautiful, and this is a thing, like really beautiful people, a lot of people are helping and and we're seeing this disconnect, but not everyone's necessarily understanding. Mm-hmm. And I think really what it comes down to is, you know, most people that I have worked with that are lawyers are truly helpful people. They wanted, they went into law to be helpers of people and, um, and a pursuit of justice and then they get into the mix of it and that was their values and their authenticity and then that part of them is a little bit suppressed the humanity of it suppressed so it becomes this um 
the cycle of like not living authentically within our profession because we have to be ourselves whether we're at home or in our profession we have think, to be and you were saying it earlier compartmentalize you were like you were saying it earlier as well um how i forget the term that you used but you said something to the effect of like you're championed if you're if you're yeah there's a social currency social currency you talked about yeah there's a social currency amongst uh just amongst any professions, you see that I've I've, I've experienced this in child welfare. I experienced this in law, but well, child welfare and law really intersect a lot. <laughs> You're in law <laughs> effectively, but yeah, like if you work excessively and you're not taking vacations and you're available 24/7 and you're not working the weekends, there's this social currency or kind of like a, a martyring of I've I'm always available. I'm yep. working the hardest. And I know when I started to create boundaries and I wasn't available at six o'clock in the morning for phone calls or at eight o'clock at night or on a Saturday, then it's like, oh, must be nice to take all this time off. Yep. And I'm like, are you kidding? I'm like, are you kidding? I still worked a 12 hour day. It, <laughs> like, you know what? It just goes back to that. That's I'm just kidding picturing this image of a guy looking the other way from you right yes. like, you are not good enough yeah. <laughs> right i'm not even gonna acknowledge your existence yeah right and it's present obviously it's present so what do you say well, I, I mean it, it stuck it, with me it stuck. i yeah. still I've, tell the story yeah. so it had an impact on me it forget and it was a motivator doing it to sure. you it could be a family member that does it to you yeah in in some cases right so yeah. uh it happens it's a real thing and that's what I mean by these these uh, like these reinforcements, right? Mm -hmm. But then here's you, and that's why I'm loving this conversation that we're having with you because you've gone through all of it, and before, you know, you, you didn't finish like that. You said, you you know, here like this is probably the most exciting chapter you're about to write, and I love about where we are with you, David, because you know some somebody like like you typically we would talk to like five or ten years from now when when you've been through the full you know iteration yeah. but here you are you're not waiting <laughs> you're not waiting till the end of like you know like you don't retire this way this is not how you go out you you make a change mm -hmm. right in the middle this is like prime time for i would say us <laughs> like this is so. prime time you've got all this experience right behind you yeah we talked the other day and he's like you won't have a problem getting clients if you wanted clients that's right it's not hard for you uh this is when you cash in on on exponential returns for all of the investments you've made up until this time and you're passing on it and you're passing on it to do something which right now you you're not even sure about <laughs> actually isn't it no so like there's that's but pretty but i want to be like thoughtful and deliberate you know one of the exercises i i, I did and i know she's a, a friend of both of yours is nicole copping pavers uh, i took a course with her about a year ago and i don't know why i had never done this but i was never the one that participated when i went to conferences if there was a meditation exercise I would, oh, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> for, yeah, is it done yet? Um, but it, she had me in one of the courses that she was teaching. She had me create a, a personal slash professional touchstone where I had to identify my mission, my vision, and my values. How am I going to deliver that? And, and you know what? I have an opportunity on this side of things 
things. One of the opportunities I may have is, I thought I had to do it this way. I want young people to realize, or, or not even young people, people new to the profession uh, or people, right? That you don't have, you can choose your own path. And yeah. not knowing where it's going to go yeah. next. I mean, here it is. Yeah. I, I, I mean, don't have, no one's promising you anything right now. Let's let, I mean, I've had the benefit of having a number of successful years to have a foundation to, to have a foundation to be able to do this. But I'd rather, I'd rather have people asking, why does it have to be that way? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're telling me that this is the formula. This mm -hmm. is the script. Right. Why? You know, we're, we're not used to asking why we just follow along. And this is why we're, we're, I mean, our systems are being called out for being colonialized. Our, our systems are being called out for being white supremacists because somebody decided at some point that they knew better and no, and as time went on, there were less and less challenges to it. So, you know what? Let's, let's start pushing back and asking more questions. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that there has to be a revolution or a revolt, but doing that exercise, mm -hmm. what are my mission or what's my mission, what are, what's my vision, what are my values, was so important because it helped to center me. Mm -hmm. And so now when I'm talking, because I, I still do assist individuals, uh, I send them that. Mm -hmm. Just so you know, this is what you're getting from me. So make the determination now. If I'm not the right person, it's okay. So uh, go see Nicole. <laughs> so yeah. Well, no, there are problem one. Uh, yes, absolutely, <laughs> Nicole. Shout out to Nicole. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Nicole. Absolutely, because that is. Um, and again, my connection to Nicole was uh, seeing you and Nicole. Oh, uh, speak last year. Yeah, speak last year, mm -hmm. and and I just knew I needed to reach out yeah. to. These are the, t so when I say getting, getting back to finding your, your tribe where you belong, mm -hmm. those are the people that I'm surrounded well, and with. And it's interesting that you, you brought that up too, because I hadn't thought about this since I, we spoke at that conference. And I remember talking a lot about therapeutic jurisprudence at the very beginning of that, and just the healing potential of the law and showing up at a very different way, because we can really hurt people if we're not trying mm -hmm. to, to come at things in a very And we're not doing it at we're not at, no and but it's that adversarial nature and it's just so toxic for children and it's so detrimental but uh, i could talk for hours on that i would digress but <laughs> but i remember after that talk i um i got an email from a judge and i phoned them after and they were they were um just speaking and reflecting on on my presentation but one of the things they said to me was I didn't want to identify myself as a judge at a, a peacekeepers conference for collaborative professionals and mediators because they felt like they'd be eaten alive almost for lack of a better word because you're the litigator and that's yeah. and that's part of the problem too is that there's this division litigators collaborative mediators and yeah. And, Silos. Yeah, and we're all here to help people. And, and you see this in other systems too, whether it's education or child welfare, is there's there's always unintended consequences of our actions. And my, I always think of my grandfather saying, like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yep. Yeah. Right? Good friend of mine, Bill Lee, said that at, a, at an event that, uh, that he and I were at. Uh, Bill was a former pitcher for the Boston Red Sox who got blackballed from baseball 
uh, and and said that you know the road to hell is paved with good intention. Yeah, yeah, but so is the road to heaven is paved with good intention. Yeah, but it's, so, we have to like, reflect you know, though. So we have to point. reflect on uh, that, but right? Like, I know I, I've actually said the same thing too. That that same line, and then it just occurred, right? What what I love about hearing, and this is just as an outsider to the legal industry, what I love about hearing you talk about is a couple of things. Number one, that it's still the same system that can be used mm-hmm. if we use it differently. So there are personal choices that people like you are making, David, and there are hard choices. And that's why I'm so happy to have you like join us today to talk about this part of the journey because you've had all the reasons to continue to ignore the voice inside of yourself, the rewards, the wins, all of those things, but you chose, you, you made a decision and it wasn't an easy decision for you to make. Um, it was traumatic, actually, that would be the word. Like you had to take five, six months out, take the break. And even when you go into that first five, six months, you didn't know it was gonna be five months, four months. You didn't know how long it was no. going to be. You just took it. And there was no promise being made then that you're going to feel better after it's done. You just did it. And in doing so, you know, you came to this this point of realization. And here you are now re-engaging, using all of, you know, your knowledge, using all of your experience. And now you're going to do something meaningful within the same system, Right. And you're gonna sure every system can always be adapted, can be evolved, right? It's how it got to this point, but it sounds like it's an exciting time ahead. Uh, I think so for what you're going to be doing. I next. think so, and and you know maybe what I you know one of the conceptions that I have is expanding outside of this system. Uh, Trina, you and I were talking about it uh, before we we came on that you know stepping outside the skills that I've developed are adaptable everywhere, Mm -hmm. not just within a particular system. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's really about, you know, there's that teaching element of me, that mentor element. So there's that part, right? So maybe those within law school or those going to professional school or just people in general, again, questioning along the way, staying true to them, identifying along the way. Cause that's the one thing that I didn't do. I didn't take the time to identify who I was along the way. It was what I thought I had to be and how I fit within that construct. But pausing, being self-aware, being self-reflective along the way, important. That's not something that they teach us. No. And it's in our, say, I, it, it, it is. It is. Here I am <laughs> at 51 years old and it's like, Holy crap. I finally learned how to live. Yeah. So what do you say now, David? I mean, this is just like, a, a, you know, like last thought. If there are, and this is what we're about, right? This is about just breaking, right? You you, you broke it. You mm-hmm. broke the cycle for yourself. But I had to break first to then break yeah. the cycle. You, that's right? exactly it. So if there's somebody out there listening who's thinking about, who's like right at the edge there, who's saying, hey, I do feel this way, but I'm not sure I can, t- I can afford to take those steps. Mm-hmm. What's the thought to them? You know what? Again, identify yourself what you're feeling. Record that. 
you know, give hold space for yourself. That's not something that we do. I I become very adept at holding space for other individuals, Trina. I, I'm sure doing what you do, mm-hmm. you you're great at that. But sometimes we don't do it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So loving yourself, uh, help trying to figure out who you are, and it's not just a moment in time. Again, that's a process. So start with that, uh, and then develop a plan. It doesn't have to be. I mean, yes. It could be a pl. I had the I had the good fortune of, <laughs> yes, it could be the pl. <laughs> Just have the pl go. And and, and and with a vision towards the future, because then you can make that gradual shift. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't recommend that people do what I did I and just know. simply Nobody pull the plug. That, right? No. But but I the think pioneers did, I right? think if you interview me in ten years, I'm going to say that this was the moment in my life where yeah, you know what? That's where the difference was made. I'm certain of it. Mm-hmm. That that, you know, this was the time where I made a choice and I didn't have to worry about it was a dramatic choice, which I, I'm sure my wife would tell you tends to be consistent with my personality. <laughs> um, it, it was a dramatic choice, but that's what allowed me to recenter myself, reflect on what I've been through in my life and my career, and how do I want to chart the path for myself? That doesn't mean that it's the same for everybody else, but being able to take that, I'm going to consider myself very fortunate having been able to do this. Do you mm-hmm. think um, Do you think it has to be dramatic? Do you think it could be? No, I think it can be gradual. In fact, mm-hmm. in fact, if, if how you know, my right? brain were wired that way, right. you know, five, 10 years ago, maybe it is a more dramatic, because you look at how I've done things. 2016, all of a sudden they said, I'm not taking on any more litigation cases, right? It was, it, that's my personality. But it doesn't have to be that way if, you, if you're if you planful mm-hmm. in how you do it. I mean, it's funny. I was watching over the weekend, I was watching Daisy uh, Daisy Jones and the Six and decided to spend my whole Saturday watching the entire thing, which is 10 episodes of an hour, an hour each. And the one moment that I, it, it, it was okay, but the one moment that sticks with me is they are uh, in the lead singer's house. And all the power goes out. So you got a bunch of musicians, a bunch of artists, creative people sitting there, and they start singing. And they sing the song Ooh La La, which is uh, Rod Stewart and the Faces. And it'll be an earworm for those that know the song is, I wish I knew what I know now when I was younger. Yes. And, and you know, you can take that in so many different directions. Yeah, for me, where I took it is, I wish I would have paid more attention along the way. So just pay attention. Pay attention, I think, is certainly, I mean. Pay attention to what, though? Pay attention to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> pay attention to what, what you know, what co- goes on internally. Yeah. Very rarely, your instincts will very rarely lead you wrong. But we suppress them because we think we have to fit within a certain mold, mm-hmm. and you don't. It's wisdom. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Thanks. You might be the only one that mm-hmm. says that. <laughs> but uh, no, thank you, thank you. I, I mean, I hope this this can help somebody. It's um, it's whether it helps someone or not. Just you're sharing the uh, the path that you've taken. It now I can see it. Like you know, we've had so many other conversations, mm-hmm. but hearing you talk about it this way. 
um, the detail from your aspirations as you know uh, a lawyer to be to those first moments of um, you know success being paused for you, just really humbling moments along the way, which can really uh, sometimes um, like it, it it can be very impactful to a young person at that point in time, right? And and then you're like, no, I'm going to go prove something to the world, and you never really bought into that whole culture. You were constantly true to yourself. As much as you feel like you were ignoring what you were thinking, you were actually paying attention to yourself. And then finally you make the decision to like really pay attention to yourself. Yeah. And here you are. So I think it's a it's a fantastic journey. And it's uh, I, I'm excited to see what's gonna happen next. <laughs> oh. Well, something tells me I'll be keeping in touch with both of you. So yeah. You'll, you'll see how it develops along the way. We're going to have an episode <laughs> about five years from now. <laughs> okay. Talking about Where are they now? How's it going? Yeah, <laughs> where are they now? Right? He's in Panama now. <laughs> He's, He's in Panama. In Panama. <laughs> and uh, yeah, look at him now. And the smiles are going to be just like the same way they look yeah. now. Look, when he said Panama, look at how, yeah, how he looks. <laughs> right? So so congrats on, on the discoveries. Um, well, you know what? We, we, we have, we all have opportunities in life and that's uh this is the blank canvas that i'm now staring at so time to, to paint the picture yeah how do you feel about today oh uh, fantastic fantastic so are we are, are we now like we're leaning out of this? i i don't know uh we're we're, <laughs> I, we're like no this on. is uh stuff I, I, you know what honestly support. this is it's cathartic in a way like this really is um uh, the interaction this is what I having watched you guys this is what I expected that it was going to be a conversation um, and you haven't gotten to know me uh, know that I can fit in with that I like that yeah. no it's a pleasure it's a pleasure thanks very much 